Take your Bibles, if you would, and look to Luke chapter 9, the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel. And this morning we are entering a new sort of phase of the ministry that Jesus has with his disciples. And what we're going to be learning in this section is, is what it looks like for a disciple to be trained and then tested in a season of, of ministry development before they're ultimately sent out. You know, discipleship is sometimes uh, viewed as this frightening prospect in the church, and yet it is really the life of the believer. The life of the believer is, is that he has been saved, he or she has been saved by Jesus Christ, so we at that point are disciples by definition. You're a follower of Christ. Even the New Testament terminology indicates that you are a learner at the feet of Christ. That is a disciple in its most generic form. And so discipleship is really the process of becoming a better follower of Christ and, and ministering to one another so that others come to Christ and become followers of Christ in that growing and wonderful way that he ministers to his people. So discipleship really follows the same pattern. You give the gospel to someone, the Lord moves on their heart, they come to Christ, and then they join the body of Christ so that you and the people of the body of Christ can begin to encourage them and nurture their faith so that ultimately they would then go out and do the same thing. That's basically the ministry that we've been given until we meet Christ. It's not an option. It is part of the, the call of God on your life. In fact, the Great Commission centers itself on that very thing. You make disciples. You identify them with the church and the waters of baptism. They are professing and confessing that they've been transformed. And then <clears throat> they're taught what Christ commands and you help them learn to obey what Christ commands. This is the life of a believer. It is the centerpiece of our activity until Christ comes. That is what we're called to do. And so in the process of discipleship, it always follows the same pattern. You identify those whom God has saved and whom he's made his disciples. You assess their character. You find pl places they need to grow. You help them develop and grow in those areas of their character. You train them in doctrine and theology. That's what we do we, at every place in the ministry. We are opening the Word of God. We are helping one another understand it. We're teaching it. We're putting doctrine into the mind. And we're beginning to help people believe it as the foundation for their life. We're calling them to faith in what God teaches. And as they develop in their understanding, we are exposing them to the life of the ministry, to other people, lost souls around them, others who need to mature by their encouragements. We're exposing them in an insulated way to areas of ministry. It would be like you with your hands on the plow and someone is less mature than you and you've discipled them and you start to put their hands on the plow with your hands. They're not fully taking over the plow, but there's an insulated exposure to ministry. That's what you do. You expose them to the work with you sort of overseeing their progress. And then you're going to let them do it on their own as a disciple and they're going to be tested and, and develop in their weaknesses and become strengthened in a greater way. So you're going to test and evaluate how they're doing, where they're at, their level of maturity, their understanding of truth. This is what you do in the sphere of your life. 
And then ultimately, you just let them, let them loose. When, when there are, God is putting lost souls in their life and other people to disciple, you turn them loose on the body of Christ and on the community around them, and they go and do the same thing. They do likewise. And Jesus is at the place in his ministry with the disciples where he is at the testing and evaluation component. He's identified them. He's called them to himself. They are followers of Christ. He's assessed their character, and he's developing them in their growth in the faith. He's working patiently on their weaknesses. They are continually being doctrinally enriched and theologically deepened as he teaches them more and more and tests their theological knowledge. And then they're following Jesus around and getting exposed to ministry. So at every level, he's exposing them to what he's doing. They weren't really trying it on their own yet, but they're being systematically exposed to every aspect of it, even the dangerous parts. But they're insulated by the master from the full brunt of it. And by the time Jesus' disciples go out on their own, they have been in a season of testing and evaluation. He wants to send them out on their own. They're going to have a big task, a daunting task. They're going to have to take the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. And so even though now they don't know what that ultimately means or looks like, they have been chosen by Christ and they need a season of testing and evaluation. And that's where we find Jesus in this ministry. He is with his disciples and he's about to send them out on their first sort of test mission, if you will. Notice beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. He called the twelve together. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag, nor bread or money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So you can see here that Jesus is at the place in his ministry. This is the third trek through the Galilean region. He's at the place in his ministry where he's about to send them out on this little test mission. Now, sending that on their own would serve two very important purposes. There would be two things accomplished that are extremely important in the life of every disciple of Christ, and particularly these first disciples. The first purpose for sending them out on this little test mission is that they would learn how to trust in the power of God for enduring ministry. Ministry is exhausting, preaching the gospel to lost relatives who reject over and over and lost loved ones and people in your community. It gets rather frightening, rather discouraging. We're going to have to learn how to trust the power of God for enduring gospel ministry, and we're going to have to trust in the sufficiency of Christ to provide for everything we need. He's going to have to provide the church, the people, the teaching, the encouragement, the uplifting and enriching uh, doctrine that we study, the, the counsel that we get, the, uh, the prayers that get answered. We're going to have to trust in the sufficiency of Christ to supply everything we need for our season of ministry, our task, for our particular place. I don't know where God's placed you. 
I don't know where in the discipleship process you are. I just know that you're here professing Christ. If that's you today, you are a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. So you're in the flow whether you thought about it that way or not. And being in the flow, God is wanting to put others in your life so that you can not only proclaim the kingdom of God to them, see them come to Christ, but then turn them loose eventually in their sphere of influence for the sake of the spread of the gospel. And that means you're going to have to trust in the sufficient supply for Christ to meet every one of your needs, whatever season or sphere you're in, and you're going to have to learn how to trust in the power of God for endurance. That's the first purpose to send them out in this little test mission. And that's exactly how it is when the Lord saves and sends us into our sphere of influence. We learn through time and his efforts and his gracious, kind work in our lives, how to trust his power to sustain us and to help us endure and to be ever more faithful and to keep us away from the things that distract. We learn that Christ is sufficient. We learn that his provision is always around the corner. It's always there when we need it. There's also a second purpose in this time of testing as the Lord sends them out, and that would be that he is wanting to begin to fulfill His heart, which is to seek and save lost souls. Sheep need a shepherd, and he looked upon the masses as sheep without a shepherd. And he's only one guy. Jesus is only one man. He never intended for the work to stop once he ascended to heaven. He's only one man. And so, again, to send them out begins to introduce them to the same need at the same level and puts them to the task because Jesus can only accomplish so much before he is finished with the work of redemption and heads to heaven. Again, we're part of the same strategy. There is literally throughout redemptive history an unbroken chain of gospel couriers, if you will. We are gospel couriers. We carry the gospel In this earthen vessel is this treasure of the gospel. So we're the couriers of it, and we are in a long line in this unbroken chain. The apostles were getting ready to be sent out as the first disciples who would fulfill this great mission of seeking those who are lost and need a shepherd. Jesus is only one man. He didn't intend to be the only one doing the work. Even Luke, when he begins the book of Acts, he says, the first account, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began. This is a work that Jesus began, and when he ascended to heaven, it was then the orders given to the apostles to carry on the work because he'd chosen them to do so. And it is true that in Jesus' earthly life, he, he achieved a staggering amount of ministry accomplishment. It's absolutely amazing what one man, Jesus Christ, was able to do. You say, but he was God. That's true. He's God. He is the God-man. So he had divine empowerment, but he took on all human limitations that we have save sin. He did not sin. He did not have a sin nature. But he was still human, fully human. And so he had all those limitations. And yet, even as one man, he, he crammed an, an exhausting amount of ministry into just a short period. He was singularly focused and undistracted. He had a pure and righteous life, so every time he prayed for ministry blessing, he got it, maximally. 
So the Lord accelerated everything that he touched in ministry just by his righteous life. Ronald Owen was an Anglican bishop born in Newcastle, England, but he spent most of his years in China, and he just made a great little statement. He said, Jesus crowded into three short years actions and labors of love that might adorn a century, end quote. That's right. Three short years of ministry and just a tremendous amount of work accomplished, but that was not the ultimate goal. Not too long after their training, Jesus intended for the disciples to be loosed onto the same needs the sheep who needed a shepherd. Fields are white for harvest, he'd said in John chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, he said, I want you to pray earnestly. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that laborers would be sent out into the harvest. Well, here's his first answer to that prayer. He's going to send out his first group. How awesome is this? They're assessed, they're developed, they're worked on. They're still weak. They have a lot to learn. There's still empowerment that needs to come. But he's going to be sending out his first ones. This is it. If he's going to go to the remotest part of the earth, here's where it begins. Right here. And so we see here in this section of scripture the preparation of these disciples. And I'm just going to draw out for you the four elements that are here. Now, Matthew and Mark's gospel goes into much more detail about what Jesus teaches them before he sends them out. But Luke sort of encapsulates it into four vital elements of their preparation. And they're great parallels to you and me. Great parallels to you and me. Very encouraging parallels. If you wondered whether you could disciple, if you wondered whether you should disciple, if you wondered whether you are a disciple, this is all right here. The Lord takes care of every detail. He nurtures every aspect. He walks his people through every need. He's sufficient. He's providing for every step of the way. And we learn that when we see what he does here with his men that he's going to send out. Four vital elements. First of all, they are supplied with power and authority. They're supplied with power and authority. And I'll just give you the four. Secondly, they are appointed to a clear mission. They're appointed to a clear mission. So they're amply supplied with the power and authority they need, and they're appointed to a really clear mission. It is crystal clear. It's singular. There's no mistaking what they're called to do, and that's the same with us. Thirdly, they are situated for learning dependence. They're situated for learning dependence. You say, what do you mean? Their, their circumstances are preparing them to trust. God puts them just where he wants them, in the way that he wants them, so that they learn to depend upon him and they're weaned off of the things that would disrupt their mission. So they're supplied with power and authority, appointed to a clear mission, situated for learning dependence, and lastly, they're charged with judging spiritual fruit. They are charged with judging spiritual fruit. I mean, discerning it, seeing it, examining it, evaluating the spiritual fruit, and making a determination about where somebody is spiritually. Notice verse 1, he called the 12 together. So the Lord is getting ready to send them out, and he calls them together for their pre-mission briefing. And as I said, Matthew and Mark give many more details, and if you see this text as perhaps the parallel account... Uh, it's not important that you know all those details. Just know that 
what Matthew records that Jesus said fits into these same categories of preparation. It fits into these same categories, being supplied with power and authority, a clear mission. Matthew even goes into the account and says, don't worry about what you're going to eat and where you're going to sleep and what you're going to wear. Stop worrying about all that stuff. Your heavenly Father knows you have need of it. I've supplied it. He even says, don't worry what you're going to say when they haul you up in front of authorities and magistrates and your heart's pounding in your chest. Don't worry about what you're going to say because I'm going to provide you with courage in the moment and truth to speak in the moment. I love that. So what Luke does is he just sort of pulls it all together here and helps us understand how Jesus prepares disciples. Such an enriching and encouraging thing for us. First of all, they are supplied with power and authority. Verse 1, he called them together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Verse 2 indicates at the end that their mission is also to perform healing. So they are supplied with power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. Now, every disciple, as we will see in a moment, has access to the power of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and to the authority of God through His Word. But the twelve here... These were appointed as the leaders of the church, the apostles of the church, the first men whom Christ commissioned, and they had, as we've seen before all through this gospel, they had a very unique role at the beginning of the mission to spread the gospel throughout the known world. They were supplied with unique expressions of supernatural power and authority. Up to this point in Jesus' ministry, it's just been Him. He's the one that's been doing the miracles, and they've been watching from the sidelines. They went into the towns and villages to get supplies, and they were the errand boys and the gophers, and and they did the sort of logistical work as Jesus traveled around, and they merely watched as servants of the ministry while Jesus did the healings and cast out demons and spoke with authority and confounded the Jewish leaders, etc., but here, here's a time in the ministry where Jesus is now bestowing on them His power and authority. They have no inherent authority in themselves to say anything to anyone as if someone has to bow to them. No disciple of Christ has any authority apart from His authority. And here He is giving them vice authority. Authority to represent Him. It's His authority, but He's giving it to them so now they have the right, the divine right, to use their authority and speak with authority and use their miraculous power in order to authenticate what they're saying. So they are vice authorities and they are vice workers of vice power. As I said, they had no more inherent authority than any other human being and they certainly have no intrinsic power within themselves to do supernatural things. The text says Jesus gave that to them. You say, well, how did it occur? The text doesn't say. It doesn't say that they felt warm all over their bodies. It doesn't say that they suddenly felt zapped. It doesn't say any of that. He just proclaims that I'm sending you out, and he gives them power over demons. He speaks it to them. And somehow, in that divine intervention right there, he was bestowing on the disciples his power, his divine power, so that now they had supernatural ability 
to invoke the power and authority of God and to operate in it to accomplish their task, and he didn't have to be around. He didn't have to be nearby. Now, as I said, every believer has a role in the gospel mission of Christ, and all of us have personal access to his power by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we have access to the authoritative message of God, which is in Scripture. But our role is not the same as the apostles. Theirs would would be eternally distinct, eternally distinct. In fact, Matthew 19, 28, he said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also, he said, shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Revelation, John's vision in Revelation 20, verse 4, he saw the thrones and he saw them sitting on those thrones. In Revelation 21, 14, the wall of the city and the 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So they had a unique, eternal, distinct role as the first ones sent out with the gospel. So everybody had to know that Jesus' power and authority rested with them. It was invested with them by him so that when they spoke, it was as good as Jesus speaking. When they acted, it was as good as authenticating everything divine. And they were given miraculous power. It's fascinating. This is is absolutely remarkable. In fact, the Bible calls them sign gifts. In other words, they had miraculous power as a sign of something. And it was a sign that would authenticate that this message of the gospel was definitely from God. That Jesus was the Messiah. It authenticated that he was who he says he is. And that his message was truth. And that Jew and Gentile would be brought together in a new covenant by faith alone, and that their sins would be forgiven in the work of Christ on the cross. He wasn't just a man, he was the God-man. He wasn't just a phony who proclaimed to be a redeemer, he was the redeemer. He wasn't just an act, he wasn't parlor tricks, this was real divine power from heaven, and it authenticated that he was who he says he is, you must believe in him, there is no salvation in any other. That's the issue. So the apostles had to be given this same display of power to authenticate the message. And they needed to be able to wield God's power with his ultimate authority. Notice it's the power to cast out demons. That was very important. It was important because between Christ's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you've got some vulnerable people hiding in an upper room. These guys are vulnerable And their faith is needing to be strengthened, and so the Lord protected them. He protected them because they needed power over the forces of darkness so that Satan wouldn't use that little season right there to utterly scatter them as misfits and have them absolutely no faithfulness and no passing on of this discipleship to the next generation. Satan could effectively cut off the gospel ministry right then and there. Say, well, wouldn't Jesus just find somebody else? No, he wouldn't do that. You know why? He could, but he wouldn't. Because when he calls and he disciples and he sends, he takes care of everything necessary. He protects your faith. He guards your faith. He chastens your faith. He cares for your faith. He nurtures your faith. Takes care of every step along the way. Whatever you need. When you're on the sidelines and you're not discipling, what does he do? He gently nudges you. 
If you don't respond, he hits you pretty hard. If you don't respond, he drags you out. If you don't respond, he sometimes gives you a real long-term lesson. And then he puts you back in the business of ministering the gospel. Why? Because he doesn't leave you on the sidelines. He could find somebody else, but he's not going to find somebody else. He wants you involved. He wanted them involved. He takes care of their every need. So he empowers them over the kingdom of darkness so that they could authenticate the truth and ultimately not have their faith completely and utterly shattered. After all, they were going to be the eyewitnesses, the first eyewitnesses. You and I are testifiers. We're not eyewitnesses. We say, oh, have you witnessed to people? I know we use that word witness, but it's actually in the New Testament a word that's technically used for the eyewitnesses. Those who actually saw, those who actually heard, those who actually touched and their hands handled 1 John 1. We're the testifiers who've come after them. Where's our authority? Right here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down by those guys. That's it. That's our authority. Where's our power? The indwelling power of the Spirit of God to transform our life and make us more conformed to the image of Christ as a group. So that the lost world can see our love and see our joy and see our worship of God and see our ministry to one another and they are shocked by it. That's the issue. But in the first disciples, they had to have visible supernatural power so that people would say, that person was given that by Christ because no one has that kind of power except Christ. No one has that kind of authority to tell demons to get get out of there. Jesus had that. There had to be a direct connection between them and Jesus. And as I said, we don't have the power to perform those signs because the signs are no longer needed. The signs are no longer needed. The new covenant is already ratified in Christ's blood. Jew and Gentile come together by faith. We have the same access to God the Father by faith. We're justified by faith alone. We're forgiven. We have power over sin that we never had before. We have the eyewitness testimony written down for us. There's our authority, and we have the ability to be conformed to the image of Christ. There's the power of it. The Lord always supplies every generation of his disciples with that same authoritative word and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If you've been on the sidelines in discipleship, you are are letting those things lie dormant. God brought you as a disciple into the kingdom. You're a follower of Christ. The only goal is to become a better follower and then make others a better follower of Christ. That's the goal. And he prepares us for it. What's the mission? Well, notice they were appointed to a clear mission. Verse 2, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform the healings. They had one clear mission And it was to herald or announce the truth of the arrival of the Messiah, the King of Kings. And he is the one who has the divine power. He is from heaven. He's already been revealed in his life and ministry on the earth. And the disciples were to go forth telling people that he had been here, he had arrived, and that he rose from the dead. And if you repent and believe, you will be saved. There it is. Very simple. There's the message. 
The kingdom of God is the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ. It is the kingdom of divine power to rescue a dead soul. So they were to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now we've, we've talked about this concept of the kingdom of God before. It, at this point, wasn't yet here. Today, with us, it's not yet fully here. But Christ, the king, was on the earth. And so in that sense, it was in their face. The divine power from heaven through the Messiah was being performed right there in their midst. And so in that sense, the kingdom of God, as Jesus says, has come upon them. You know, the Pharisees were saying, oh, you cast out demons by the power of demons. And he said, well, if I cast out demons by the power of demons, then a house divided against itself won't stand. So don't worry about it. It's eventually going to fall if that's the case. But he said, but if I cast out demons by the power of God or the finger of God, then the kingdom has come upon you right now. It's in your face. It's in your midst. You better respond because this is divine power from heaven. So every disciple of Christ is to make it very, very simple. We herald the king. We tell him Jesus is here. He's alive He came to earth, he was the Messiah, he died, he rose from the dead, he is alive, he's seated at the right end of the Father. The Messiah is alive, he's the only Messiah, the only salvation you'll ever know. And the requirements for citizenship in his kingdom, repentance and faith for the forgiveness of your sins. His death on the cross in exchange for your wicked life, you must put your faith in him. Those are the requirements for citizenship in the kingdom. And his people, once having repented and believed, we joyfully anticipate the full expression of that kingdom when he comes to set up his kingdom in earthly glory. So even embedded in the idea of anticipating the fullest expression of the kingdom, there's a warning. There's a warning in our message. We proclaim the king, we proclaim his kingdom, we proclaim the fullest expression of it yet to come, but when he comes, if you don't believe then when he comes in his second coming, he's going to bring the full force of divine wrath upon all who don't believe him. That is part of our message and our proclamation. Jesus himself anticipated a future kingdom, Matthew 6.10. He said, pray this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the pattern of our prayer. Your fullest expression of the kingdom come, Lord. The king was here. He inaugurated the arrival of divine power in the face of believers when he was here on the earth. The apostles took that same power and authority and proclaimed with that same miraculous visitation, if you will, on the earth. People should have known it, should have seen it. The Spirit inspired the God-breathed written revelation so that all generations would now hear of the same king and the same coming kingdom and the same warning comes from us to all who are on the earth. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's our message. That was their message. And it was a singular message. It was clear. It wasn't convoluted. Don't get the thing all convoluted, oh, some, some message that attracts the world. Don't convolute it like that. You cannot attract dead hearts to the life of the gospel. You cannot. God may use your holy life, your love, to soften a dead heart and draw them, but it's God's work. Just tell them the king has come and tell them he's coming again. 
and they must repent and believe. That's our message. That's the clear message of this church. It's the clear message of every disciple of Christ who is faithful to the proclamation mission. It was true of these apostles when Jesus sent them out. He didn't want them getting all mixed up with the Jewish leaders in some synagogue and trying to argue philosophical points. He didn't want them going out into the Greco-Roman culture and getting all involved in high philosophical questions about the existence of God. They had a clear task. Proclaim the kingdom and demonstrate the power of God. And in their case, they could demonstrate healings so they could show the power of God over physical disease and death as a metaphor for his power to transform spiritual death, to heal your spiritual death. What an amazing thing. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the apostles. When they first went out, Jesus had given them that kind of power and they first went out and it It says in verse 6 that they were healing everywhere. What must that have been like? I mean, they'd seen Jesus do it, but they never could. I'm sure they wept over some of the sick bodies. I'm sure they recoiled at the horror of maimed people and diseased and leopard people. I'm sure that they must have just stood in horror and watched as diseased people came to him and they anticipated that that person could be with Jesus because they'd seen him heal, but they could do nothing. Their heart must have been gripped. Has your heart ever been gripped when you've seen someone racked with disease? Of course you have. Some of you have lost loved ones that way. And you couldn't do anything. What must it have been like for those fishermen, a tax collector, some rabble group, able to finally walk right up to somebody and say, I've got the power, the authority to proclaim to you that you must repent and believe and to show you that this message is authentic, I want to heal you. What must that have been like? Amazing. Thirdly, as the Lord prepared them, he supplied them with power and authority and appointed them to this clear mission, and then he situated them for learning dependence. He situated them for learning dependence, verse 3, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money. Don't even take, don't even have two tunics apiece. Now, this is interesting. It's What is Jesus doing here? He's about to send them out. He's not going to be with them. He's actually going to go off into the area of Caesarea Philippi and up into the hills, and he's going to kind of go away, and the crowd's going to chase him. But they're going to do a pretty prolific work, according to the next few verses, which say that Herod even took notice of what Jesus was doing and and what the apostles on his behalf are able to do. So word was spreading pretty quick that Jesus sent out some guys that can do just what he did. But this is interesting. He sends them out and he takes away all of their security blankets. (laughs) He strips them of all their comforts. What is he doing here? Well, we we get sort of an interpretation of this from the Lord himself in the 22nd chapter of Luke. Just look there very quickly. In the 22nd chapter of Luke, Jesus is talking to the disciples later in his ministry and he looks back at this first test mission. He refers back to this first test mission. But it's in a particular context. So notice 
Luke 22, verse 28. He says to the 12, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Literally, this is just before Judas' betrayal, so Judas is already a phony in the group, and Jesus knows that, but he's still speaking to the group as a group. You are those who've stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there you have that concept. They have a very, very special appointed place as those who've been delegated as vice authorities in God's church. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, so he re- he's speaking directly to Peter and he uses Peter's other name uh, because of what he's about to say to him. He knows Simon has a weakness. Simon, Simon, listen to this. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you Here it is, that your faith may not fail. So here we get an indication of what the Lord has to do when he sends out his disciples. He has to prepare us so that whatever he's sending us into, and we don't know what it is till we step out in faith, we're prepared. Our faith is strengthened, ready. Now, I know how it is in the Christian life. You think, Lord, I'm I'm ready I'm ready, and I know you've got trials planned for me, but don't make them big-time trials because I I can learn without that. Trust me, Lord, I can learn. Trust me, I don't need that. I don't need it. But the Lord knows what we need to wean us from our distractions and our weak faith, and he knew that about Peter. And so he says, Peter, I've prayed for you for this one thing, that your faith won't be crushed, snuffed out. And, verse 32, you, when once you've turned again, I want you to strengthen your brothers. So there's even an implication here that Peter, Peter knows he's going to be exposed in a weakness. He doesn't think he has the same weakness the Lord is about to describe, but he knows that there's the implication that he might at some point drift a bit and then come back. He just doesn't know how far he's going to drift. And so being the confident one that he is, verse 33 Jesus proves the point with Peter's own statement. He said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Here's a vow, courage. But this is self-reliance, self-dependence. Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Three times you're going to deny that you even know me or have been with me and you're even going to curse. You say, what's the point? Verse 35 is the point. He said to them, when I sent you out without money belt or bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? He's referring to chapter 9. And what did they say? No, nothing. You say, wait a minute, he took everything away from them back in the beginning when he was testing their faith. Yeah, but they didn't lack anything because he was going to prepare a pathway as they went out so that they didn't see their comforts already supplied. They hadn't prepared them. They didn't take them in a bag. They didn't have money for them, but the Lord unfolded the path. And we'll see in a moment how, but he, he prepared a way. He devised the plan. He set things in place. He took care of them. He met their needs. He did what it took. He strengthened their faith. The supply was there. They couldn't see the bridge, but when they stepped out, there it was. 
This is how the Lord exercised their faith muscle. He took their comforts away. And when he refers back to it, he says, you didn't, you didn't lack anything, did you? There wasn't a time where you didn't see me unfold a plan. Sure, you had to pray for it. Sure, you couldn't see it. Sure, you were frightened. I get that. I want you dependent upon me. I want you praying to me for your supply. But when you stepped out, it was there, wasn't it? Every time, all along the way, no matter what, I've been there. And they said, that's true. Every time. Why was that important now? Well, notice verse 36. Now they're in a season of ministry where he wants them to take some supply. Verse 36. He said to them, but now whoever has money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that the, that which is written must be fulfilled in me. He has, was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Look, gentlemen, I'm about to die. There are about to be some hostilities at a level you've not seen. And you're going to be sought out. And when I have you huddling together in an upper room or I have you scattered to your homes because they've struck down the shepherd, I want you amply supplied and cared for until I come back and see you at the resurrection. How marvelous a tender care of the Lord to strengthen their faith and supply for every need. Listen, he does the same with us. I mean, he tells them here, no staff, that's interesting. A staff was like your stability. It wasn't just a walking cane. Man. You, you walked everywhere, and it was rough terrain, and, and you could fall. And, and so it, it was stability, but it was also a weapon, dangerous animals, dangerous criminal elements. You're going to be traveling, going out to villages. You're going to be preaching the kingdom of God. There's hostilities. You need a staff. You can whack some guys. Get them off your back. He says, don't take one of those. I don't want you worrying about taking any extra thing like that. No bag. That's, you know, don't take your ancient backpack. Don't take it. And don't put any food in there. You know, they would, have, they would have rationed out some food and supplies. I don't want you to ration out. I don't want you to plan. No planning. So don't put any food in there and no money to buy food and lodging. I don't want you preparing. No planning and preparing. I'm going to take care of all of it. It's not always going to be like that in your ministry. I'm not always going to take away all your comforts, but right here at the beginning of your discipleship test, I'm removing them. Why? Because I know you. I know you'll rely on those, and I don't want you to. I want you to see me in action. Beloved, that's always how it is with us. Always. So he's testing their faith. Furthermore, he's leading to the fourth and final element. There's another primary reason he didn't want them taking anything, and it's because of this fourth and final element. He's going to charge them with judging spiritual fruit. They are charged with judging spiritual fruit. Verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there and take your leave from there. And as for those who do not receive you, hey, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. You say, what's he doing here? Well, in the Matthew account, Matthew 10.10, he says, look, don't take all this supply because the worker is worthy of his, his support. So Jesus sends them out, and he's going to use the response to the gospel as support for the missions and a way of exposing hearts. So think about it. They go into a village, and they preach the gospel, and somebody over here responds. 
And they take the missionaries in to support their ministry. That house is to be blessed and used as a staging area to, for several days while you're in that village proclaiming the gospel throughout the city. Jesus is exposing to everyone the hearts of those people in that house toward the gospel. And the disciples know it. The apostles know it. And they're to declare it. In fact, Matthew's gospel says they're to pronounce peace on that house and give an official blessing from Christ to that house. So there's a discerning of spiritual fruit here where when the apostles would come in and preach the gospel, if that person responded righteously to the gospel and believed it, they would take them into the house, use it as a staging area for missions, and that house was forever confirmed and blessed as having responded rightly to the gospel. But for those that didn't, for those that didn't want to believe it, rejected the missionaries, rejected the discipleship process, rejected the truth of the gospel, the disciples were to give a visual witness against that house. Shaking the dust off the feet was not personal contempt. You understand that. People have tried to use this text to say, yeah, if somebody rejects the gospel, he's just, you know, good riddance. That's never to be the heart of a believer. We're to grieve when someone rejects the gospel. The apostles shaking the dust off their feet was a visual testimony to the village of which house believed and which didn't. Can you imagine the wife and children of a house where a father rejected the gospel right then and there? And those missionaries did that visual shaking the dust off their feet in front of that house. It says in Matthew's gospel, remove the blessing from that house for their response to the gospel. Declare them unbelievers, in other words. Discern the right response to the gospel, distinguishing it from the wrong response. Wow, I mean, that's huge. It's a testimony against them, he says. If they respond in faith, wonderful. Demonstrate that that's the fruit of true staging, uh, saving faith. And then that house becomes sort of the mission's headquarters. If they reject the ministry of the disciples, then give a visual testimony that they don't have the fruit of the gospel and it's a witness against them. And in the judgment, if they don't believe and repent, it's going to come against them. I sent the gospel to you like I sent it to other villages and you did not believe it. Other people in your village believed it. Other people supported my emissaries, my ambassadors. Did you know that God is still keeping score on that? When you've shared the gospel with someone, maybe a group of people, maybe some family members, maybe coworkers, maybe people in your community at a school or just people you meet on the street, and they reject the gospel, God removes his blessing of gospel grace from that place for whatever his purposes are and forever how long his purposes are. It is a testimony against them. If they never repent and believe, I mean, God may use that to soften them, but if they never repent and believe, then in the judgment, that moment that you presented the gospel is going to witness against them, John 5 says. The Father's going to witness against them, the Spirit's going to witness against them, the Son is going to witness against them, the Scriptures will witness against them, and every time they were offered the gospel by any disciple of Christ, it will be brought up as a witness against them at the judgment. Marked out as a testimony against their response. God is still doing that. You know what he's also still doing? He's still saving through your witness and 
Those people have gospel fruit. Gospel fruit. They receive the truth. We proclaim the truth. We listen to the response. We watch the life. We bring scripture to bear. Now, I can't see the heart. You can't see the heart. I don't, I don't look in somebody's heart and say they're saved or they're not saved. What I do is take the authority of God's word and say, okay, here's what the Bible says is the true evidence of the Spirit's work in a saved person's life. Here's what it looks like. It's not perfect, and it's not free of failure, but here's what the fruit definitely looks like. It's visible. It's real. And if I see a total absence of that fruit, then I want to bring the Scriptures, and I want you to put your life up against it. That's what I want you to do. Sometimes people say to me, oh, I'm so offended that person questioned my salvation. Why are you getting offended when someone questions your salvation? I mean, we're, we don't have a right to simply say to someone, on the authority of my profession, believe me. You don't have that right. There has to be the Spirit's evidenced fruit growing in your life, or your profession's going to be questioned. So if a friend comes to you and says, hey, you know, I just wonder whether your profession is credible, you shouldn't be incensed at that. You should say, really, Let's hear, let me hear it. Because if you're saved, it's a win-win situation, is it not? It's a win-win situation. If you're saved and you come to the Word of God and they show you some fruit, some evidence of unbelief, you get to grow in a blind spot or an area of weakness you didn't see or someone God sent to you to help you. It's a win-win situation. If you are not saved and you reject that counsel, it's a lose-lose situation. Say, what if I'm not saved but I really want to hear what they say? It's win-win. Because what if the Lord uses that to draw you? You're still going to cry out to God for forgiveness, aren't you, for the weakness pointed out? You're still going to go to God in genuine faith and say, is it true, Lord? You say, well, am I supposed to never have assurance? No, you're just supposed to get it from only one place, the Bible. It's supposed to be strengthened from only one place. can't be strengthened on the, the sheer force of your profession or someone else ignoring your fruit. Disciples are always going out and making distinctions between the fruit of someone's profession. Always. That's part of our role. Not as judging people. I mean, I'm equal with people. We're all equal sinners. I don't have any judgment for somebody's life. But I want to bring the word of God to bear so that they can see with clarity just where they stand. That's what the disciples, the first apostles were sent out to do. They make declarations about where people stood. Does that house have an increasing love for Jesus that they accept the truth and accept the mission and the gospel work? Does that house have an increasing love for the truth and God's word? Does that house have an increasing hatred for sin? Does that house have an increasing love for God's people? Then, then they're the ones receiving the truth. This house, does this house have none of those things? Then they're the ones not receiving the truth. And it'll be a testimony against them. So in every way he prepared them, God prepares us. And so verse 6 says, departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and demonstrating that power to heal. What an amazing thing <laughs> that, that we still now, generations later, are prepared the same way. The Lord gives us his power by the indwelling strength and ministry and grace of the Holy Spirit, and he gives us his authority, which is his word, the only thing the Spirit works through right here. You read it, you study it, 
You have the illuminating power of the Spirit of God in your mind. He renews your mind. He helps it to, to bear its implications for your heart. He brings conviction. He renews your mind and heart, Romans 12, 1 and 2. He conforms your mind and your thoughts and your life to Christ. There's your power. There's your authority. And ultimately, we are appointed to the same clear mission. Go into all the world, make disciples, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. There you have it. Repent and believe the gospel. And we are circumstantially put in the place where we're going to have to depend upon the Lord and rely only on him. And if you have gotten off track and you're out of the flow of ministering to one another in in the gospel ministry of discipleship, etc., the Lord is either chastening you to bring you back and align you with his purposes, or you're, you're perhaps not a believer, and you just don't care about the gospel purposes. You're one of those houses that might be pretending, but you don't really know him. All disciples of Christ are growing in their dependence upon him, so that he's supplying all the need and that the power may be his that is on display in our lives, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. And then we examine fruit, the fruit of our life by the scriptures, the fruit of other people's life by the scriptures. Martin Luther said, for Christ took but a little corner for himself to preach and to work miracles and but a little period of time. Whereas the apostles and their followers have spread themselves through the whole world. The Lord prepared them and sent them, those first men. And when we get to heaven, they will tell us about the work from their perspective, and they will want to know about our work from our perspective some 2,000 years later. And who knows? Till the Lord comes, your children, your grandchildren, another generation in this community, who knows? Who knows what this land will be like, dark or light? But we know this we're called, and it's not an option. And we're prepared, and the Lord will sustain us so we can trust him for that. Amen? Lord, thank you for this good and wonderful narrative of how you prepared your precious servants. What an amazing thing that you sent them out, and they did go, and they were prepared, and they needed to depend upon you. What an amazingly difficult thing that must have been, knowing the hostilities that would come. They knew you were already being pursued and threatened and they knew you'd spoken about heading to Jerusalem being handed over to the authorities they were directly connected with it but what they needed most was your encouragement and preparation and today Lord you've given us the same we have your spirit we have the authoritative word written by him we have a wonderful, clear mission. We're not to get sidetracked. Repent and believe. That's our message. Jesus Christ, the righteous, our Messiah. That's, that's the centerpiece of our gospel. You. And Lord, we know you put us through difficult circumstances because we have to be weaned off of ourselves. And no matter what we claim about whether we need those challenges or not, you know what we need. And you never fail to not only meet our needs, but supply along the way. We struggle to believe that. The struggle is ours. You have never failed. You are always proven. 
And even when you ask the disciples whether or not they remembered your ample supply in every situation, we're convicted by that same question. Have you not supplied everything for us? And the answer is yes, you have. You've never failed in that. And so we want to give ourselves to the work and see the fruit and we want your word to polarize hearts and, and save the lost. You care for the lost sheep without a shepherd and so we want to care the same way you care. So strengthen us for the work. Strengthen your people in these things and where we've been derelict in our ministry and gospel proclamation. Help us to help strengthen each other in the work. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.